You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 187 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Marie Hawes and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, Marie and Victoria. Hi. Hey. Before we get started today, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Let's start with you, Victoria. Hi, everyone. Uh, As Alexis said, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I have a Ph.D. in Gender Studies and Literature from Florida State University, and uh, currently I work for a market research firm, and in my free time, I read and write and play the ukulele. Thanks, Victoria. How about you, Marie? Thanks. Yeah, I'm Marie Hawes, a regular panelist on the show. I have a PhD in early modern literature and an MDiv with a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. And I live in Connecticut with my family. Currently, I'm mostly um, taking care of my three children. That sounds like a busy time. Um, my name is Alexis Neal. I do not have uh, degrees in literature or women's studies. Um, my, my degrees are in criminal justice and law, uh, but uh, I really appreciate the chance to be uh, here and learn from people who have studied literature and feminist issues more extensively. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, and most of my time is spent these days, um, I am homeschooling, getting ready to start homeschooling my second child as well as my first. So. I've been homeschooling uh, one for a couple of years, and now it's going to be like for really real homeschooling because now I will have two. So I'm sort of trying to get my head around that. And then also I'm an elected official for our rural community. So I get to um, deal with all kinds of local political challenges, um, of which there are many. So it's it's plenty to keep me on my toes. But what is keeping me on my toes right now is uh, getting to talk about Um, a famous work of Russian literature that we're going to talk about today, and that is the novel Anna Karenina. So um, to start off our conversation, I'm just going to give a little bit of background information on the novel, um, and then we'll move into discussing it in more detail. So Anna Karenina is written by Leo Tolstoy in 1878. This is roughly 10 years after the uh, War and Peace comes out. Um, This novel centers around an adulterous relationship between the titular Anna and Count Alexei Vronsky, an officer that she encounters early in the novel. Alongside Anna and Vronsky, and to a lesser degree, Anna's husband, who rather obnoxiously is also named Alexei, but we're going to probably call him Karenin um, if we need to refer to him in this episode to try and keep things a little bit less confusing. But in addition to them, we also encounter two other significant couples, Anna's brother, Steva Oblonsky, and his wife, Dolly, and then Dolly's younger sister, Kitty, who ends up marrying a gentleman named Levin, an old friend of Steva's, and a pretty obvious Leo Tolstoy stand-in in the story. And if you think all of that is hard to follow, just wait until you read the book. Um, of these three relationships, one is clearly and consistently, um, clearly and fairly consistently tragic. Another, while still tragic in his way, in its way, is less catastrophic in its outcome, as the parties do reach something of a loveless detente. And then the third relationship is what appears to be the novel's version of a happy marriage. Of course, this being a Tolstoy work, it also includes a host of other themes, family, faith, politics, progress, rural versus urban living. Um, Anna Karenina is routinely included in and often tops lists of best or most important novels. And according to Wikipedia, it has spawned something like 17 or more films, uh, the most familiar of which for American viewers is probably the 2012 version starring Keira Knightley. 
something like seven television adaptations, including one in development currently, four ballets, three musicals, four operas, and uh, one mashup novel entitled Android Karenina. So uh, this has definitely permeated culture, uh, Western culture, in a, in a variety of ways. Um, but before we start talking more about the, the novel, ladies, is there anything else our listeners need to know going into our discussion um, that I've missed in my sort of short summary? And while you're at it, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal interactions with Anna Kay? When you first read the novel, your first impressions, second impressions, has your opinion changed over time? Any adaptations you've seen? Just talk to us about your experiences with this work. Uh, Marie, why don't we start with you? Yeah, thank you for that summary. I appreciate that list of themes particularly. Um, for my part, I had actually never read this novel before reading it for uh, preparing for this episode. So I joined this episode so that I would get a chance to read this and get into it for the first time. And it was actually a real pleasure to sink into something so expansive and profound. I sort of forget sometimes how nice it is to get into a, a really huge <laughs> novel like this. But I don't have any other experience with it, and I haven't... Uh, seen or read any of the adaptations all right victoria how about you uh i had read this novel once before i was about 19 um and because i was 19 uh i read it for a very silly reason uh because there was a boy um i was dating someone at the time who was very into russian novels and um, I said on some date or other, um, you know, tell me what it is you like about them. I, I just can't really get into the Russians. Um, and he said, you have to read Anna Karenina. So I did. Um, I really enjoyed the novel the first time I read it for a completely different reason than I really enjoyed it this time. I found it romantic and dramatic and operatic and over the top. Um, very, like, soap opera, train wreck reasons. Um, reading it again over 15 years later with 14 years of marriage under my belt was a completely different experience. Um, primarily, like, my experience of reading the novel the second time was like, oh, 19-year-old me was super dumb and really inexperienced and completely looking at the wrong things. Um, in this novel uh, and I was really frustrated with a lot of the characters and mostly with the depiction of marriage because it seems like most of the characters and, and we'll talk about the exceptions to this um, but most of the characters particularly Anna and Karenin work really hard to purposefully misunderstand each other to try to avoid communication um, just they they seem like they don't really want to do the work of being married um and and what uh what seemed over the top and kind of delicious at first um ended up seeming this time like a purposeful attempt to misunderstand what marriage is supposed to be for um but i i also kind of expanded my view of what the novel is trying to do because I, I see it um, much less as a soap opera these days and much more as a, a work of kind of humanistic philosophy. But I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about that as the episode goes on. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to discussing those things because I have only read, like Maria, I've only read this novel the one time uh, when I was 41 years old, which is how old, many years old I am now. Uh, I read it for a book club. Um, this is the same book club where I read Middlemarch last year and then had an episode on Middlemarch because apparently I'm just stealing from a book club for episode ideas at this point. Um, I had not read it before, but in college, low these many years ago, I had read War and Peace for a class and did not care for it at all. So when the book club decided to read Anna Karenina, I was very curious to see whether I would feel similarly about 
this other work of Tolstoy or whether I would have a different experience, um, whether I was more mature and more able to appreciate what he was doing. And apparently the answer is no, I am not better able to appreciate Tolstoy at 41 than I was at 21. But um, that's not completely fair. I did enjoy Anna Karenina more than War and Peace, but I did not like it. Um, and I don't know how much of that is an issue that I have with 19th century Russian literature, or if it's specific to Tolstoy. I, I don't I don't know. I am actually planning to try and read some of Tolstoy's short fiction this year to try and see if I do better with him in short form. Um, and I'm also de just deciding whether to watch one of the adaptations. I've seen none of them thus far, but whether to watch one and see if that helps me to like it better. But I'm concerned that I will just be annoyed the entire time I'm watching whatever it is. So if listeners have a recommendation for a good adaptation of Anna Karenina, please let us know. All of that to say, I'm looking forward to our discussion this evening because I'm hoping that talking with you ladies will help me to better appreciate this novel that apparently the whole world loves, except me. So, um... I, I will jump in and say... Um, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but I have seen the Kira Knightley movie, and I I don't leave movies, and I didn't leave that one, but I really wanted to. I hated almost everything about it. Oh, interesting. Okay. The, the directorial choices, the costume choices, uh, Domhnall Gleeson was okay in the movie, but Kira Knightley was awful. Um, I went to see that movie with, uh, Carla Godwin, formerly of this podcast, and about two-thirds of the way through, we leaned toward each other and said, uh, how long until she throws herself under the train? <laughs> that's, that's how much we both hated it. So, uh, <laughs> your mileage may vary, everybody, but, uh, I did not like that movie at all. Okay, that's, that's fair. I hear good things about the, um... Greta Garbo version, so I might give that one a try. We'll see. But um, anyway, so beginning our actual discussion then of this novel, we're going to break our discussion down into a series of three comparisons, um, all of which will center around Anna, our title character. Uh, we're going to talk about Anna and Dolly, um, her sister-in-law, uh, Anna and Kitty, and then we'll talk about Anna and Levin, actually a, a male character, but but we'll talk about why there's some some interesting comparison and contrast stuff going on there. So uh, to start off our discussion, we're going to talk about um, Anna and Dolly. So uh, to start with, um, Victoria, why don't you talk to us about how you think, what, what is the novel telling us about Anna and Dolly and how they compare, how do we see that worked out? Where are some places in the novel that we see that comparison? So this novel, in addition to being, as we have alluded thus far, um, about marriage and what marriage is for, also has quite a lot to say about um, Russian social politics, um, what people do to see and be seen, and how they kind of jostle with each other for position. Um, it is, in a lot of ways, a very gossipy novel, both in the female spaces and the male spaces. Um, the language of female gossip and male gossip is different, but the kind of structure of it and the um, jostling for position of it is, uh, in many ways, really comparable. And uh, a scene for me that we really see the difference between the way Anna navigates this Russian um, socio-political scene and the way Dolly does is um, about a quarter of the way into the novel there is a horse race and uh, Anna's lover Vronsky is riding in the horse race and injures himself and this is shortly after Anna's husband uh, Krenin knows about uh, the affair. He discovers it, and the horse race is an incredibly tense scene because uh, he knows she's having an affair, and she knows he knows that she's having an affair, and it's it's all very cringy, uh, and, and this is the moment in the novel that I felt the most in touch with my 19-year-old uh, self's 
love of the drama because it it really is kind of a a train wreck can't look away kind of scene and you feel or at least i feel an incredible amount of secondhand embarrassment um for anna um but you know who doesn't dolly dolly is totally into it um she is even more here for the drama than 19 year old me um she says uh in a scene very close by to the horse race that she wishes she could have an affair too because it's all very exciting um and you just realize that her priorities are not the same as um as anna's who is to her credit kind of mortified by the whole thing um but even though she's mortified by it she um goes and tries to focus on vronsky even as she knows that it is detrimental to her marriage and that her husband is um is watching her the whole time so she kind of can't uh can't help herself and dolly is very into the salaciousness of the whole situation which I think is interesting because later in the novel, and I don't remember where, how much later, but later in the novel when Anna and Vronsky are living together uh, outside of the metropolitan areas, um, Dolly has an opportunity to visit them. And she is, Dolly is married to a man who is repeatedly and unrepentantly unfaithful to her. Um, so both Dolly and Anna at the beginning of the novel are in loveless marriages. Anna to a man who is... Uh, kind of just unemotional and not terribly um, attached to her from from what we can see. The, the, I, I don't think there's any examples of him being actively terrible to her, just it's unsatisfying for her. Um, Dolly, when we meet her, is dealing with the aftermath of finding out about her husband's unfaithfulness. Um, and her husband basically yeah, is like, yeah, that's going to not... Like, I can tell you that I'm going to stop, but I'm not going to stop. So that that's her situation, and she is perpetually trying to figure out... Well, at the beginning, anyway, is trying to figure out, do I, do I stay in this marriage? Do I... What is my alternative? Do I take the kids and do something else? What What is that going to look like? So they're both in unhappy relationships. Um, and when she's on her way to visit Anna, she is thinking... I wish, you know, maybe, maybe I should just go off and have an affair, um, and wouldn't that be exciting? And then she spends time and sees what Anna and Vronsky's life is like together, and um, how much Anna is avoiding conversation with her about some of the difficult things that are going on, and by the time the visit is over, she cannot wait to get back to her family, um, and... I mean, her relationship with her husband is never, there's not like a, a reconciliation other than just she seems to have kind of resigned herself to being in the relationship that she's in. But yeah, that 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 um, sort of envy or romanticizing Anna's life is something that continues for her. And then I don't know that we see it again after she's had a chance to observe them more closely during that visit. Yeah, it seems like that visit is one of the strongest points where you have the contrast for those two characters, like particularly when it comes to their attitude towards motherhood, because um, Dolly is just painted as so primarily a mother, always concerned with the children and uh, with their welfare and their characters and with showing them off. Um, and then when she makes that visit to, to Anna and Vronsky, she has that that initial feeling of freedom that you talked about but then realizes oh yeah i'm i actually want those demands of the children in the household and she's relieved um and she has that conversation with anna about how anna's going to uh choose not to have any more children um and she has like a kind of uh it's sort of unimaginable to her um when she's talking with anna there that she could uh, ha choose that kind of life um, for herself uh, and so that's that is a huge contrast between the characters their attitudes towards um, the ties of children which is not um, yeah it's not something that I think we're supposed to see as maybe positive in the way that Tolstoy is painting Anna but it is something that uh, resonates today with her portrayal, I think, that she has that 
um, freedom of thought that Dolly can't even imagine. But I, I want to say I got really angry at Anna during that visit. Like I feel like because she, she values her relationship with Vronsky over her relationship with her children, even when she knows kind of deep within herself that they can't have the kind of connection that she romanticized uh, when she was still married to her first husband. Um, There's that horrible scene where um, when she's still married to Corinne, um, Vronsky shows up and Corinne is still there and that's when they first start talking about divorce and he writes her that terribly cruel letter where he says um i'm i'm gonna take our son and she at first is kind of sad about it and then she's like well okay like i guess if that's what you have to do all right and she just completely doesn't like that's not even a thought to her i i do agree with what you're saying marie and and that there is kind of a a um cultural time difference in terms of um women today are probably more likely to see some empowerment in anna's position and some um maybe lack of of self-actualization or whatever term you want to use in dolly's position but i I don't know. Like I, I just think that Anna, Anna doesn't understand the um, the the positives um, that she could have in relationships with her children um, in in a way that made me made me upset as someone who has chosen for various reasons not to have my own children um, and has had to work to. Um, have relationships with younger people in other ways. And maybe because I've had to do that work is why I was like, she's just throwing this away and like doesn't even care about it. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I feel like we're supposed to be angry with her. And I mean, she's such a complex character, but it's it's felt like it it was almost in spite of himself that uh, Tolstoy was painting her as like straining against forces that don't allow her an outlet for all her intellectual abilities. Um, Like uh, when she's trying to get into those agricultural activities and schooling and that sort of thing, uh, when she's living with Vronsky and um, she's constantly reading. And that's uh, something that, um, we see, I, I feel like the narration is supposed to say, like, that's definitely unfulfilling to her because it's not children. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a, a time difference, I think. Well, I think part of it, too, is that, that her her relationship with Vronsky is so poisonous to her whole life. I mean, it, it seems like it's yeah. a con- it is a consumptive relationship. It, it consumes every other part of her life. Um, and so, I mean, even with like the, the intellectual side of things, like the, the way I read it is right. She's not actually interested in these things. She's just trying to do everything she can to knit herself more tightly to Vronsky, interested in the things he's interested in um, that, that she's not, her world is not expanded by this choice that she's made to be with him. It has contracted to, it's just him. The relationship she has, has are limited to the people who are willing to still associate with her. And it doesn't seem like any of them are real, robust, mutual relationships. And even the relationship with Vronsky doesn't, doesn't seem like it has those qualities. It reminds me, I think, is it Chesterton who talks about like any love when it becomes the primary all-consuming love is is corrupted whether it's parent love or love of country like that that um that that's that's uh, unhealthy and i want to talk more about that when we talk about about kitty but but marie to your point i think one of the things that i found myself as much as i was frustrated with anna which was sort of like my perpetual posture was like oh Anna, i'm so frustrated with you kind of the whole time but also realizing i don't know what her options look like um, and and some of that tying into what marriage looks like 
um, and this ties, I think, into, into what you were saying at the beginning, um, Victoria, as well, like what marriage looks like in this culture at this time and how does it relate to um, to social interactions? What, is it, what does it mean emotionally? What is, it, what is going on religiously with marriage? Um, did, um, did either of you want to talk more about marriage in this novel and specifically um, using using the contrast between Dolly's unhappy marriage and Anna's unhappy marriage as a jumping off point? Um, well, one thing that stood out to me with the contrast with the, that those two couples, of course, is how uh, Anna and her brother perform like sort of parallel actions in their unfaithfulness to their spouses. And he's, he, he, her brother is pretty much ends up pretty much fine in that that loveless detente like you said but um he's not under a train anyway and uh anna's life is completely ruined so there's that strong mm-hmm. gendered contrast that's being made in that couple those two couples yeah i mean there there is an assumption and i i think someone even says in one of those like business meetings i I don't remember who it was because in addition to there being like 50 million people in this novel, everybody has at least three names because the Russian patronymic construction is so difficult to follow for my American brain. Um, Did you two have as much trouble with that as I did? I mean, it was not an easy thing to get my head around. The nicknames were confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... All of that, it's very difficult to um, kind of wrap your brain around who is saying what, but at some point in some um, business meeting, the assumption that married men are just going to have affairs because that's what they do um, comes up. And the the scandal around Anna, the, the reason that she becomes the kind of social pariah that... Um, that Alexis mentions and her the size of her world shrinks is because a married woman having an affair is a is a different thing um, socially and it, it means something different so yeah I, I think Marie you're right there is um, a kind of gender double standard happening there and I think with both couples too we have this uh, emphasis in both Dolly's mind and Anna's mind on what's going to happen to the children, even though Anna has, um, you know, placed all of her love and desire into this relationship with Vronsky, she does end up very um, concerned about Siroja and uh, not being able to be with him anymore. Um, and I think that one of the most chilling scenes in the novel is when she has that one last visit with her son uh, after he thinks that she's dead so she's like practically appearing like a ghost to him and she just spends a few minutes with him and then leaves and that's the last time he sees her <laughs> it's so horrible um, and all, and then there's her, her daughter as well that she has with Vronsky who is of course the second Anna Karenina in the novel because she's uh, claimed by uh, Anna's husband rather than by Vronsky by the end of the novel so I think that echo, echoing of the name in that second Anna Karenina is a way of reinforcing that we're supposed to be asking well what's going to happen to these children because of the actions of these adults um, and the scarring that's going to happen to them and Dolly as well in, in choosing to have a loveless marriage uh, to uh, have the children maintain relations with their father uh, is very concerned with the, the position of her children and how they'll be affected by it I think as readers we're, we're supposed to be thinking about that And you get the sense that it's not going to end great for them either, right? In addition to there being two Anna Kareninas, there are two Alexis. Um, Vronsky and Karenin have the same first name. And 
you've just mentioned, Marie, how all of these people are sort of connected to each other. Um, so since that Anna Karenina um, has one Alexi who will claim her and one Alexi who will not, um, just as the first one did, in fact, um, though the claiming kind of gets inverted, uh, you know, we, we get a sense that it's probably... Um, if the past is, is to be um, anything to count on, not going to end super great for her either. Yeah, I imagine her growing up alongside her brother in that household. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Marie, your, your point about Anna and her relationships with her children, I think, makes a good transition to the next comparison, um, Anna and Kitty. Um, one of the things that, that really struck me and I, not terribly surprisingly, and it was very frustrating to me. I really liked Kitty a lot. Um, but one of the things that, that I thought, I mean, I thought there are a lot of points of comparison between Anna and Kitty. They, they demonstrate competing expressions of, of femininity in a number of respects, um, innocence versus experience, uh, youth versus maturity, conformity versus rebellion, um, thriving in a domestic sphere versus thriving initially in a more social sphere. Um, but the point of contrast that struck me the most wasn't necessarily a contrast based on expressions of femininity, but of virtue more broadly. That is how they care for other people. Um, so Anna talks a lot about how much she loves her son and how sad she is not to be with him. But she also does a lot of like running off to Italy or wherever with Vronsky. Um, and the, that heartbreaking scene where she comes back, um, it didn't seem to me like it was based on this is what will be best for my son. It will be beneficial to him for us to have this encounter. Um, and and I, I want to have grace around this because I also realize if we feel like we are powerless, sometimes resignation can look a lot like callousness. Um, so I realize that, that some of that maybe she just knows that she can't be with him and that's why we don't see her trying to be with him or she just knows that these two visions of being with the, the people she loves are, are not going to exist coexist simultaneously in, in that culture. But I still felt like, so I want to hold grace for that, but in, but in general, my, my impression was this is just a lot of useless belly aching. You're not doing anything about it. You can make a different choice. If this is what matters to you, you can make a different choice and, and live differently. Um, and so um, it felt more like her behavior was, was selfish or, or again, if you, know, you view this, the, her relationship with Vronsky as this just all-consuming thing that she, she is enslaved to and therefore powerless. You know, she's addicted to him. She cannot break free of him, and therefore she sacrifices everything else, all her other relationships. In contrast to that, my, probably my favorite part of the novel was um, when Kitty, newly married Kitty, goes with her husband Levin um, kind of against his will Levin's brother is sick dying of of uh consumption and she comes and and helps and we see her just kind of showing up and and Levin is very concerned that she's like I don't want her here she's a delicate woman she can't be around all of this and she comes in and she just takes over she's like he needs clean sheets he needs a bath he needs food and she takes care of him uh, so in, in Kitty we see that compassion and her compassion drives her toward the sufferer to help him and it's there's a second contrast here she's not just contrasted with Anna and her failure I think to care for her son um, but we also see a contrast between Kitty and Levin um, so it's not just a gender like two women expressing um, care for someone in different ways you also see a contrast with Levin because he sees his brother suffering and his response is to recoil and be squeamish about it and he doesn't know what to do so he kind of wants to pull away and it's just it's just such a beautiful picture our Sunday school class was just talking about this this morning actually like how the compassion of Jesus results in action he loves his sick and sinful people and that love drives him toward them to help them to heal them and ultimately to save them and Kitty is a picture of that virtue in the way that she sees Levin's brother suffering and is just driven to do something in a way that Levin didn't and in a way that I don't think we see Anna demonstrating for whatever reason toward her children. 
Yeah, it's a very kind of angel in the house moment when Kitty is taking care of Nikolai, and uh, that is, like you mentioned, a big contrast between Kitty and Anna, that uh, Kitty is this almost, like, sacred portrait of uh, the angel in the house woman, uh, whereas Anna is sometimes almost described in diabolical terms, like something is possessing her. Um, but both of them are put on pedestals by their lovers. Um, Anna's always afraid of how she might fall off of the pedestal in Vronsky's eyes, and Levin has this like nearly sacred view of Kitty as wife and mother. Um, and I think uh, when we see Kitty... Uh, caring for others that's definitely we're supposed to see that in a positive light in contrast with Anna um, but it also is connected with the portrayal of Dolly and her concern with others with her children her uh, almost all-consuming concern there um, I, so I wonder if we're supposed to take that as like this is definitely the best womanly way to be although as you point out it's not it's not solely a, a gendered uh, thing because we see that Levin should be more concerned with the uh, the physicality of uh, helping his dying brother too um, but it did, it did seem like a very mm, uh, well it made me a little a little tired thinking of that angel in the house cookie cutter thing that <laughs> Kitty has to fit into there. I, I see what you're saying, Marie, and I, I don't disagree with that, though I will say I um, Kitty's actions toward Levin's brother, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now. What is his name? Nikolai. Nikolai, thank you. Um, so Kitty's actions toward Nikolai actually ended up making me like both Nikolai and Lennon more. Um their relationship was just exhausting to me. They needle each other so much. Um, it's clear that they're very different types of people, and I'm um, I'm sympathetic to that. I am one of four children, and my sister and brothers are are very different from me. Um, it's it's taken kind of all of us getting to adulthood to respect and understand the way in which we are different people. So I, I understand how that works. But um, particularly with the these ideas of physical sickness that we've been talking about, um, there's a, a scene with Levin and Nikolai earlier in the novel where they're, um, they're living in a house together and Levin goes out and works the fields um, with, with the workers that they are over. They're a higher class of. And his brother is making fun of him for this. And Levin says, no, actually, I've discovered that um, a lot of my anxiety um, and kind of neurasthenia um, is alleviated by work with my hands and his brother is like that's like that's dumb that's low class that doesn't make any sense and I, I really saw that scene and the scene where Kitty um, kind of jumps in and, and takes care of Nikolai's physical needs as parallel scenes um, where Levin can um, can kind of understand that connection between uh, understand that connection for himself he can realize that um, physicality should triumph over kind of mental um, phil philosophizing and, and worrying, um, can see how that works in his own life, but cannot um, make himself make that leap to care for the physical needs of someone else and, and get a kind of emotional relief from that. Um, so... I, Kitty, yeah, made me see both Levin and Nikolai in in more shades than I otherwise would. Mm, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. Well, and I think your your point, Victoria, leads to another 
potential contrast between Kitty and Levin's relationship and Anna and Vronsky's. We've talked before about how all-consuming Anna's relationship with Vronsky is, and I, I feel like that's not as much a factor for Levin and for Kitty for a number of reasons, I'm sure. But but you know, Anna's trying to find her happiness solely in Vronsky, and he is not sufficient to support that. He is not solid enough. He's not constant enough. He cannot be that foundation. And and she's really not enough to be his foundation either. We see him kind of perpetually wanting to be set to find some measure of satisfaction in other things um, and that that's a, a source of constant stress for her and jealousy partly because she doesn't have that luxury right like the the, the uh, number of available additional supports for her is significantly restricted like you were saying earlier with the the, the differing gender views on infidelity but um they're so trying to be absorbed in and by one another and to be the focus of one another and that center just can't hold but both Levin and Kitty seem to be able to work for things besides the other person um, and ha and then also both of them seem to have a spiritual dimension to their existence so that they are not consumed as fully by the other person like like Levin certainly we know has a lot of other things on his mind both before and after marriage um and and Kitty she loves him a lot but I mean she she's also got her faith that he initially is not sure that he shares and her family and her other relationships and so it might not be as an expansive a list um of other interests or or supports in her life as we would maybe like, but it's it certainly is more robust than what uh, Anna and Vronsky have or are willing to um, to take advantage of. So I think some of that maybe ties in to your point earlier, Victoria, about what 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 is marriage for? Um, is there is there a work to be done? Is there a purpose behind it? Is there something other than just gazing into the eyes of your spouse <laughs> that is supposed to be accomplished in marriage? Yeah, and I think one thing I did appreciate about that caregiving scene uh, with uh, Nikolai's death uh, is the growth that it's showing in Kitty's character in contrast to earlier in the novel when she has that sort of experiment with Barinka of uh, trying to live for others, but it doesn't really work out for her then because it's just artificial she's like throwing herself into this social caregiving trying to imitate her friend that she meets overseas and uh, she realizes that's not really for her uh, the life for her partly because she is really just acting for herself and trying to figure out the uh, the secret to the happy life that she sees her friend living or if not happy like fulfilled life um, and in contrast to that sort of artificiality early on here uh, when she's working uh, to take care of Nikolai she's doing what needs to be done in the moment and she's doing it for Nikolai and for Levin um, rather than to create a kind of persona for herself I, I guess um, so I do see that connection with the powerful uh, mowing scene with Levin that you mentioned a minute ago and, and Kitty working in the moment uh, doing what needs to be done and trying to finding in that in a way fulfillment in life because it seems like the overarching question in this novel uh, at least that kept coming it kept coming back to for me when I was reading it is all of the characters are trying to figure out uh, what is the point of life just that tiny little question <laughs> so um, there's uh, and in working in the practicalities of the moment with the mowing and with the uh, taking care of the sick brother um, both Levin and Kitty in those moments at least are, are finding some kind of fulfillment even if they don't have perhaps the ultimate answer of what is the point of life yeah I I agree I think um, those two moments were um, kind of the the moments I was least frustrated with the characters of the novel um, because I I think well this is is kind of tipping my own hand, but that's fine. Um, I I do 
think that the purpose of life is to connect oneself to community and other people and and to figure out how we can serve each other so i i guess that it makes sense that that those are the two moments of the novel that i would find most fulfilling Well, in the interest of time, is there anything else we want to talk about comparing uh, Anna and Kitty before we move on to Anna and Levin? Well, I think we're sort of already moving on to Anna and Levin. It's all sort sure. of connected, isn't it? Sure. So, Marie, do you want to talk about some of the, the ways, the contrasts or, or comparisons between um, between Anna and Levin that we see in the novel? Well, what was most powerful, of course, to me and the contrast between these two characters is their uh, the conclusions that they come to because of course at the end of the novel we have that really those that those horrific pages with the stream of consciousness leading up to Anna's throwing herself under the train uh, and we have her sort of thinking through how everything in life is horrible because you know there's no good in anybody. Everybody is just evil. Um, there's nothing worth living for. Uh, and uh, the, the bad in all humans makes life meaningless and worthless. And so that ends in her suicide. Whereas for Levin, who had been tempted by suicide, um, finds that there is something worth living for and that the irrational turn towards selfless good in some humans makes faith and life possible for him. Um, so it's a very pointed contrast and it feels so pointed that even though I know that Levin is this uh, Tolstoy self-portrait largely, it almost makes me feel like we're supposed to be finding some kind of other option than these two extremes um, or some kind of middle ground or something but I can't really figure out what we're supposed to be finding in that contrast so I wonder what you guys thought of that contrast and the, the conclusions for these two characters so when we were reading this as a as a book club our my version has um, and notes some of which give things away before I want them to be given away but one of the things that um, that was in my notes was that Basically, the original contract for the novel was, like, he fulfilled it at the time when Anna dies, and that the the other, the last section is, is added, like, it's basically him deciding to keep writing. And for me, it, it felt like Anna's death was the end of the novel, and should have been the end of the novel. So I will say the end, the last part with Levin felt like it was tacked on and felt like there was a tonal shift, um, which which made it which I think also contributed to that almost like artificial artificiality to it, like of like, oh, this is also not a really real, I don't know, it, 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 it didn't feel as, as root grounded in reality as some of the other parts of the, of the novel. So I, um, I didn't love that just because of those, those reasons. I don't know what I would have thought if I hadn't seen the end note first that this was sort of um, not part of the original story as planned. But um, I also think about what, as we've been talking about, like what are the options that are available to Anna? Some of her stuff, some of her thought process about like what things are going to look like and how there is hope and how things are going to be different. She's not necessarily wrong in her assessment of some of those circumstances. Her options are limited. She is cut off um, from relationships other than Vronsky, who is not great. Um, she doesn't have meaningful work, something to, to focus on besides him, partly because of the class that she's in, that she's in, like, and that they don't, they're not in an agricultural, the same kind of agricultural setting, even that Levin is. Um, so she doesn't have satisfying, meaningful work that she can do. She's kind of a woman of, of leisure with nothing to do but wish that Vronsky was with her and be worried that he's off developing some kind of attachment to someone or something other than her. Uh, she doesn't have any people around to her who are encouraging her toward virtue and hope and reality. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I did, I did wonder sort of what, how much of what Levin is able to do is, is a result of very real differences in their, in their circumstances. Uh, yeah, I think they're both painted as having the potential for, um, doing good work and, you know, 
society or in agricultural settings or uh, and a creating schooling for people or that sort of thing um, but we have Levin um, yeah Levin does have obviously much more freedom than Anna and ability to choose what work he's going to do and where he can find fulfillment um, whereas Anna is so constrained and I think that that constraint and narrowing down um, I guess is part of what's being shown in those final scenes with Anna that seems like she she feels that everything is narrowed down to that choice to throw herself under the train um, whereas Levin is at least it's trying to find an opening out but it does feel kind of artificial, partly because this Levin character is so in his head all the time <laughs> getting all these philosophical thoughts. Um, so. is, is that why he was my favorite and I related to him so hard? <laughs> am I, am I, uh, is my anxiety showing? <laughs> I, we kept talking about Embokov and I was like, he has a lot of big feelings. Like he's just, he's, he's dealing with a lot of big, always with a lot. He just has a lot of them. And, uh, <laughs> and but I, mean, I thought that was interesting because it was, I mean, obviously part of that's because he's Tolstoy, so Tolstoy gets to just whatever Tolstoy is thinking about, right? He has the most access to his own thoughts and therefore we get to see those. But that there is so much, that, that the two characters who are having the biggest feelings are not two female characters or two male characters. I think you see, you see Anna and you see uh, Levin having these big feelings. Sometimes those feelings are, as I tell my children, sometimes your feelings are telling you things that are not true, and it's still a real feeling that you're having, but it's telling you something about the world that's not true. Um, and both of them experience that, and and um, yeah, it, it is an interesting contrast to see how they process that and how the people around them have a role in that, because Levin does have people in his life who are sharpening him in a substantive way. Um, he has, you know, his his brothers do speak into his life um, with varying degrees of truth. He has a housekeeper who, who uh, also seems to be able to be pretty frank with him. Um, he and Kitty, their relationship that they have, you know, their communication, um, they seem to be the married couple that is actually trying to communicate clearly when there's an issue and they yeah. one or both of them has made up a story in their head about what is going on with the other person. It, I was always so nervous because everybody else was so bad at communication. There'd be something that would happen. I'd be like, this is it. He's going to break up Kitty and Levin. I'm going to hate this even more. And I was always surprised that they would they would go and they would talk it out and they would cry and they would have a reconciliation, but they would actually say the words <laughs> about whatever it was they were thinking um, and, and fight through that. And so, um, I mean, some of that is Levin does have, I think, a high view of virtue personally, and he does have some some kind of um, conversion sort of at the end. Um, but even even he does, uh, right before he marries Kitty, doesn't he confess all of his uh, uh, indiscretions to her? So even, even he has not, um, you know, followed a, a, a biblical sexual ethic necessarily prior to being married. And the consequences for him are obviously very different than what they oh bring goodness. for Anna. That scene, I... I don't remember what I felt about it the first time I read it, but the scene where he gives her the diary and and says, like, before we get married, I need you to know the person that I used to be, I fully wept. Like, as a married person, and I'm, I'm sure the two of you have done this in your marriages as well, like, sometimes you just have these conversations where you're like cards on the table these are all the ways that i am terrible and sinful <laughs> and like sorry that you're tied to me forever but this is what it is um and sometimes you just have to go through those moments in your marriage and they are painful and beautiful and they are a portrait of the way that god loves and forgives and even though they're scary they are to me the best part about being married and I just, I loved that scene and Kitty's reaction to it so much. Oh, yeah, that's really beautiful. I, I hadn't really even thought about that that scene, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for expressing it that way. 
So then if if we see in an in a Kitty and Levin, the novel's version of a happy marriage, uh, one where they are um, not just focused on each other all the time to the exclusion of everything else, where they're not actively trying to misunderstand each other at every turn. Um, I'm curious what you think then about um, about the opening line of the novel. So Anna Karenina has one of the most famous opening lines um, of any novel. Uh, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I don't know that we have more than one happy family to compare in this novel to see if they are alike, uh, but we do have more than one unhappy family. So before we move into passing on, does anyone have anything they want to say about that opening line and the, the philosophy that it expresses? Give me happy and boring and samey all day. Like, I, I, I know that, like, the, the kind of knife twist of that line is, you know, uniqueness and, and excitement is, is in the unhappiness and the kind of quirkiness. But um, the thing that I say the most often when younger people ask me what it's like to have been married so long um, and and now that my husband is a high school teacher and all of his colleagues are um, 25 years old um, I, I get asked about what it's like to have been married so long um, increasingly frequently um, and and what I say to that is that you know, you, you might not think it at the beginning, but the boring stuff is the best stuff. The best stuff is the routine of it and, and knowing that someone is going to be there at the end of your 14-hour day to listen to you talk about it. So I, I don't know that I have taken the kind of sexy literary scholar uh, view of this, but uh, happy, boring families all the way for me, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it. there is something to that, that uh, the happy family has that agape, selfless love and that uh, communication that you've been pointing out with um, Kitty and Levin, uh, whereas the unhappy family, there are lots and lots of forms of lovelessness. Um, so, yeah, boring love, that's the way to go. <laughs> Well, and I, I guess I, and maybe this is the, the legal training coming through, like, so, because I was looking it up and, there, you know, there's like a whole principle that's derived from this or that, that is, this is expressing. Um, the idea is that there's lots of ways to sort of go wrong with something um, and only one way to, like, make sure you hit all of the right things. So, so it's not unlike following the law. Okay, there's a bunch of ways to break the law. So you could say that everyone who's not a criminal is the same because they've obeyed all of these laws but they aren't the same there's lots of ways to not to not disobey the law and and live lots of different kinds of lives without transgressing um and and i realize that it's a little bit maybe different but but that idea of whether it's you know biblical obedience or whether it's actual obedience to the civil law um like there the fact that you conform in certain specific ways if, if that's the list you look at and you say, well, they do X and Y and Z, all of that is the same. Okay, so if, if being a good parent includes, you know, feeding your children and making sure that they have clothes to wear, boy, that sounds really samey. Well, no, there's lots and lots of, there's lots more to being a parent than just feeding and clothing your children. Um, and there's lots of ways for those things to look different. And there's lots of ways that they will look similar. Um, but I don't think that that, I feel like that there's sort of an, an artificial conclusion that, that you jump to thinking that it's just monotony and, and there's no difference. But if you know people, like I, I, you know, I know people who are happily married and their marriages don't all, I don't think, look the same. They have different strengths and they have different ways that they, you know, feel appreciated or like to relate to each other. So I, I, I think, and, and this is something I think we hear a lot in the church, right, where there can be this idea of, if you are going to obey God's teaching, if you're going to follow the example of Christ, you will have to become 
less individually unique and less yourself and and there will be a sacrificing of individuality and there's a way in which i become less obnoxious alexis as i become more sanctified but i think uh, a a a healthy and robust doctrine of creation also means god created a lot of us and not just the same of us many times and so to some degree as i am transformed into the likeness of christ more and more i also become more and more myself and more and more whatever that unique creation is supposed to be and so in some ways i think i am a more run-of-the-mill just like everybody else you know I don't know, the more I'm a sinner, like that there is a way in which I am becoming less robust and unique and interesting as I become more selfish and sinner and, and more of a sinner um, that, 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 yeah, I, and I would assume that, that we've had some experience with that too. If you've met people who are, you know, people, ways that people are awful, you're not usually thinking, wow, that person is unique and interesting in their awfulness. Like, it's just like, oh, more of this. So I, I think there's different ways to look at that. Um, I, I'm, also, I'm, I'm with you guys. Like, I, I don't crave a ton of uh, excitement and roller coasteriness in my life. I, I tend to, you know, if I were ever to try skiing, it would be cross-country skiing because I don't need to go that fast down a hill. So I, I definitely don't need uh, a lot of those sorts of things artificially inserted into my relationships. And I also think that that stability and consistency and uh, contentment in, in maybe less variation from day to day sounds awesome. But I also just don't know how much that's what there what is being said or what is what is true. That's a, a really great point, Alexis. And I, I love um, particularly what you said about the unique uniqueness inherent in all of us being the Imago Dei. Um, I'm I'm gonna be thinking about that for a while. Thank you. Yeah, I like that idea. It's like we become more real and more ourselves as we go further in and further up, like in the last battle. <laughs> or the great divorce, right? The the, yeah, the yeah. becoming more more substantial um, as a result. Like sanctification is becoming more substantial, not less. Um, well, anything else we want to talk about about the novel Anna Karenina before we move on to passing on? Well, just you talking about becoming more substantial, we have that famous description of Anna Karenina, uh, the character, having a vivid insubstantiality. It does seem like she has to lose kind of herself in vividness as she progresses. So in a way, she's um, performing that uh, a, a diffusion of self that ends in her death. But That's a good point. All right, well, with that, let's go ahead and transition to our passing on segment. Marie, do you have a recommendation for us? Yes, I'll go ahead and recommend The Count of Monte Cristo, um, the famous novel by Alexandre Dumas, um, just because that was one of the other novels that I read in the last few years that has given me that experience of that that pleasurable experience of just sinking into a really really long <laughs> big novel um and i think our listeners would enjoy that as well if they're looking for that kind of novel um and also because uh one like bonus of the count of monte cristo to me that i didn't expect was there's a same-sex couple that runs away together and has a happy ending just tiny little side characters um so that's a fun thing thanks for that recommendation victoria what about you uh so as i have said throughout this episode um one thing that adult me was really frustrated with um during the second read through of the novel was uh, I felt like so many of its characters, um, Levin and Kitty accepted, were just trying really hard to not understand the purpose of marriage. So um, I was reminded during my frustration with this novel of um, an essay I read a few years ago by N.T. Wright called What is Marriage For?, where he goes um, through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and picks out several um, key points and talks about 
marriage as a sacrament through which we see the love of Christ for the church and um, and talks about the relationship between um, Christ's love for us and how we should show love in marriage. So, uh, What is Marriage For by N.T. Wright. That sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. Um, yeah, that's, I'm super excited to read that. Uh, my recommendation, so first off, if Anna Karenina feels too big, um, or if you have not loved the Tolstoy that you have read, you can feel free to join me and read some Tolstoy short fiction. Always a fan of short fiction in general, but I think I feel like it's an underappreciated uh, medium. But um, so just generally, always a good. If, if the big novels are too big, a lot of these authors have written something shorter that you can um, use as a way to access with it's a less of a time investment. So I'll be doing that uh, hopefully this this year. Um, and then my recommendation is A Gentleman in Moscow by. I guess it's Amor Towels. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, it's a beautiful book. It's a, it's different in time. So it's, it's, what, 40 years later than this book, 40 or 50 years later um, in its setting. And But I, I did think it tied in some similar um, issues with, with Russian culture and some of the um, the different the different themes not necessarily exactly the same but with some some interesting common um, common ideas and it's just a beautiful beautiful novel um, and so that was one that I really did enjoy that was um, in a in a Russian setting um, despite not maybe loving Anna Karenina as much as all the rest of the world so a gentleman in Moscow is uh, is wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the Twitter at the network's Twitter or X handle, CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. From Marie Haas and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Alexis Neal. Beginning in September, our schedule is going to look a little different. We will be releasing one episode a month starting next month. Tune in next month when we'll be discussing the Barbie movie. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.